Hello, and welcome to Checks and Balances, Threats to This American Election. This weekly podcast is sponsored by Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers dedicated to bolstering the rule of law and opposing the degradation of American legal norms. My name is Paul Rosenzweig, and I'm your host. Joining me today as my guests on the podcast are Ken Weinstein and John Bellinger, and our topic today is the national security consequences of the upcoming election. Fostering free and fair elections is not a partisan issue, not a right-left issue, not a conservative or libertarian or liberal or progressive issue. It's an American issue. And so, this podcast, we aspire to offer accurate information that captures the ground truth about our election process. We'll speak about what the law entails and how to make sure that every legal vote is counted. We'll also talk about what's at stake in the election and why elections have consequences. Today, I'm joined by Ken Weinstein and John Bellinger. Ken is a former Homeland Security Advisor to President Bush, and he's now a partner at Davis Polk and Ward Rail. John is a former National Security Council legal advisor and former legal advisor to the Department of State under President Bush, and he's now a partner at Arnold and Porter. Together, they are the co-chairs of a group known as Former Republican National Security Officials for Biden, which currently has more than 130 members. Other notable members of the group include Senator Chuck Hagel, who was also the Secretary of Defense, General Michael Hayden, the former director of both the CIA and the NSA, Senator John Warner, used to represent Virginia, and William Webster, the former director of both the CIA and the FBI, as well as at least four former Trump officials. I should add that I, too, am a member of this group. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be with you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having so, us. We begin each week with news from the past week. Usually we look at something political that has happened, but in keeping with the theme of this week's podcast, I want to look outside of our border at some of the national security concerns. So first up, last week, John Bolton, President Trump's former national security advisor, predicted that if Trump wins a second term, he'll move to withdraw the United States from NATO. Now, Let's leave aside whether he is wrong about that prediction or not. Let's just discuss what the consequences would be if Bolton is right. John, let me start with you. How critical is NATO to American security and how critical is it to our alliance structure? Well, thanks, Paul. And the answer is uh, NATO is extremely critical to our security, not only in Europe, but around the world. And it would be calamitous if Donald Trump were to pull us out, something that he has threatened to do for a while. I'll just say two things. One, this is intensely personal to me because I was actually born at NATO headquarters when it was uh, in Paris, and my father was a young army officer assigned to NATO. So literally, uh, uh, NATO and I have been around for a long time. But uh, NATO, which has existed since 1949, uh, has been uh, central to U.S. security uh, in Europe and around the world, uh, not only to uh, during the Cold War, but now for out-of-area operations. And it would give an uh, enormous victory to Vladimir Putin uh, if he could get the U.S. out of NATO and therefore disengaged from Europe. Ken? What would you expect our allied uh, our allies to do? How would that? What would their reaction be? How would this resonate with them, as well as with Russia and China? Well, just a second. What John said, you know, NATO has been absolutely instrumental to our security and the security of the West. 
Um, it's been, you know, the a foundation of our, our mutual defense. And, uh, and I, I agree. I think the term calamitous that John used is just right. And it would play right into Putin's hands. And look, if you look at what Putin has been doing for the last decade or more, everything he's done vis-a-vis the West has been designed to weaken our alliances, weaken the strength with which we can confront Russia and its, um, and its designs. And they would love nothing more than to see the NATO, which has been the bedrock of our united front against Russians, Russia's uh, uh, malignant designs, to, to be weakened. And look, you know, going back to Trump's initial, or at least his, the, the rhetoric that he uses against NATO, I understand the concern about other NATO members not carrying their full share, not paying enough for our mutual defense. Perfectly legitimate concern, and and I understand him raising it. And to the extent that he makes progress with getting uh, other members of NATO to share the load, that's great. But why throw the baby out with the bathwater? And especially when you throw the baby out, you're going to have, um, you know, to mix my metaphors, you're going to have Putin there licking his chops uh, <laughs> with a great prospect of, you know, really sort of carving up the countries of NATO and then starting to sort of insinuate Russian influence into each of them and thereby undermining our ability to push back against um, their efforts to basically recreate a Soviet empire that we, we thought was, you know, relegated to the dustbin of history back, whatever that is, 30 years ago. Yeah, but almost exactly 30 years ago, right? The wall, the wall came down and, you know, unification happened. So uh, let me change gears a little bit. And let me stay with you, Ken, because the other obvious big news, far, far more significant than Bolton, uh, was the, the president's diagnosis with COVID-19. And, you know, let's be clear, none of us on this podcast are medical doctors, so none of us can offer anything about the prognosis for the president. But what we can ask is how um, the uncertainty created by the president's uh, illness plays out on the international stage. And and it strikes me that there are two aspects of that, Ken, uh, both of which you would have seen from inside the White House. The first is uncertainty within the administration. How is it that power and authority are being allocated today? And the second is whether or not a crisis like this affords adversaries an opportunity for opportunism, if you would, that would allow them to be adventurous, more adventurous than they might have been. Uh, is this a time of danger or, sh- or am I overstating it? Sure. It's a time of danger and a time to be sort of extra vigilant, sort of for both reasons that you just articulated. First, whenever you have a situation where the president is in any way handicapped, possibly, uh, you know, possibly out of commission um, or maybe to be out of commission, uh, you know, that's a danger time because you have adversaries who are tracking this and they're thinking, okay, well, let's see if there's there's a time when there's instability within the U.S. government. And when there's instability within the U.S. government, that could be a time to strike. And I don't mean necessarily launch, you know, ICBMs at the United States, but maybe, you know, if they then try to go gobble up a little, you know, former Soviet satellite state, um, the same time that we're, you know, wrestling with a president who's potentially at a commission, they know it's going to be a little harder for us to mobilize and, uh, and and push back. So that's just sort of one scenario that you can imagine. And then related to that is your second point, which is, you know, whenever we are, we as a nation are focused on a crisis internally, that's an opportunity 
for um, adventurism by a, a Russia or a China because they know that maybe our 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 focus is inward. Therefore, just you know, to the point I just made before, it's going to be harder for us to maintain or bring our focus to a hotspot externally. And so, yeah, in both respects, I think you know that the the impact of COVID on the top levels of the United States government. Um, is is a time of of you know I wouldn't say danger as in necessarily we're in danger of uh, you know nuclear obliteration but that it is a time that we need to be extra careful that our adversaries might be emboldened to take some uh, step that would be contrary to the interests of ourselves or our allies. Yeah, it's often kind of uh, difficult to really understand how much national security plays into what is normally just local election space. So let's broaden the lens a bit. Um, you guys are uh, members of, uh, founders of this group, former Republican national security officials for Biden, reflecting, I think, a considered judgment that you've made that that at this time and in this moment, uh, that's the better choice for America. And I want to talk a little bit about why that is and more broadly about what the consequences would be for national security in a Trump second term and how Trump's first term has affected U.S. standing in the world. So let me start with you, John, and just say, you know, we've already talked about NATO, uh, and that's just you know, one example of Trump's approach to world security leadership. In light of what we've seen so far in this first term, uh, how do other national leaders view Trump? How do they view him in terms of his reliability? And is their viewpoint uh, problematic for U.S. national security? So thanks, Paul. So let me say, let me say a word about our group, which uh, then uh, uh, bleeds into this very question about U.S. leadership in the world. So Ken and I have uh, organized a group of what's now more than 130 former senior Republican national security officials, you included, uh, and by Republican, we mean people who have served in senior uh, positions in former Republican administrations, the George H.W. Uh, Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, the Trump administration, the Reagan administration. These are people who have devoted their lives to uh, public service uh, at the State Department, Defense Department, Justice Department, the intelligence agencies. And these are people who are all extremely concerned about uh, uh, Donald Trump's leadership of the country uh, and the danger that he has uh, poses to our national security. Uh, and we believe that Joe Biden would be a better president. And one of the reasons, in fact, it's the top on our the list of reasons that we give in a statement that we have published in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, is that Donald Trump has diminished uh, U.S. leadership in the world uh, for the last 70, 80 years since before World War II, uh, the United States has been a world leader. Other countries have looked to us for leadership. They don't always agree with us, uh, but they have looked to the U.S. for leadership. And Donald Trump has completely diminished the United States and himself and America uh, in the eyes of the world. Other leaders think of him as something of a buffoon, a clown, a reality TV show star, more concerned about his own ratings than about uh, even the American people, much less uh, leadership in the world. Uh, he's criticized our closest allies in very personal terms. Uh, uh, Theresa May, uh, the leaders of Canada, France, Australia, Angela Merkel, uh, others. Uh, he's withdrawn from 
uh, uh, all sorts of international organizations and agreements, the World Health Organization, uh, the Paris Climate Change. Uh, uh, he may disagree with these, but these are, these are entities that other countries believe in and that by pulling out of them, by threatening to pull out of NATO and other alliances, uh, Donald Trump diminishes uh, U.S. leadership in the world. There was a, uh, and I'll end with this, uh, go over to Ken, uh, there was a Pew study this summer of uh, views of the U.S. and the world right now, and the U.S.'s international reputation is at an all-time low. It's the lowest since the Pew began polling. Uh, uh, people in more than a dozen close U.S. allies uh, said they have more confidence in Vladimir P. Putin and Xi Jinping of China to do the right thing than they do of Donald Trump. So, Ken, yeah, I, I, I've said that to many people, and they normally tell me uh, that I'm, I'm just sour grapes. They say that Trump's national security policies have actually been a success. You know, they point, for example, to uh, his withdrawal from the Paris Accords, which they think was adverse to U.S. interests, the, his withdrawal from the Iranian JCPOA, which was, uh, again, they think adverse to American interests, uh, the movement of the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, which they say is a recognition of an ally's necessity, withdrawal from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan that is ongoing, that is reducing our, our overseas uh, footprint. So give me your perspective. Are those legitimately seen as wins for Trump? And how should we how should we view them in the context of our discussion today? Well, I think we can look at it from several different perspectives. First, there, you know, there are going to be people, a whole constituency of people who are in favor of each of those developments, you know, who are in favor of moving the embassy um, to Jerusalem, who are in favor of withdrawing from the Paris Accords. And, you know, they all have their own reasons. Let's look at it, though, from the perspective of the president, who's supposed to be thinking not just about each of those particular constituencies, but what's broadly best for the United States. I think these, the, these examples are, are you know, pristine examples of where Trump looks at a national security issue, frankly, any issue, through one lens and one lens only, which is what's best for Donald Trump. And this is, goes to the heart of the reason why John and I are so... Uh, passionate about this group that we pulled together to support um, Joe Biden uh, for national security purposes, because that's you know terribly dangerous in any area, but especially in the national security area. I think Trump sees these as wins. He sees each of these as a win, but the reason he sees them as a win is because they show that he is um, he's sort of keeping his campaign promises and he's going it alone. He's you know making you know, thinking about every issue in terms of what's first for America and not worrying about the, the, the repercussions. And I believe that's what you see is that, you know, he, he doesn't really care about the ripple effects of this. And you know, as a result, he's not thinking about what it means to be out of the Paris Accords, other than that he's able to tout that as a win politically for him. And not only does that ignore the repercussions of his decision-making, which is that's symptomatic of all his decision-making, it also means that he's relegating us into in a non-leadership position. Every time he pulls himself out of uh, an agreement, he pulls himself out of an alliance, he's having American leadership recede further and further from the scene. And therefore, we have less and less influence. 
So, and that I think is very dangerous for us because we are a world leader. We have to be a world leader. And frankly, we stand for the right things as a nation. We want to, to be uh, in the lead in terms of spreading those values around the world. And by having our leadership recede this way, it's bad for our position in the world, but I think it's also bad for the direction of the world in general. And he doesn't think about any of that. And so while you can look at each of these individually and, and argue the merits of each decision, I'm mostly concerned with the fact that his decision-making process comes to a decision for one reason and one reason only, what's politically best for Donald Trump. So let's follow up on that and, and modulate the topic slightly. You know, one of the reasons you two have suggested, the, the group has suggested that Trump is a, is a profound concern for national security reasons is the way in which he's interacted with foreign dictators like Putin and Xi Jinping. So let me ask you first, John, tell me a little bit about the effect on national security and diplomatic relations when, for example, Trump embraces leaders like Kim Jong-un and speaks of his great respect for the man. How should we view his lauding of Xi Jinping as a, as a, quote, brilliant leader in light of the repression in Hong Kong or the Uyghur camps? How does that affect our diplomacy? So Donald Trump's embrace of dictators, authoritarian figures, and other international thugs is really one of the most uh, uh, saddening, disappointing, and perplexing aspects of his national security leadership. And it's something where, frankly, Democrats and Republicans agree. Uh, uh, for decades, there's been uh, bipartisan agreement uh, between uh, Democratic and Republican administrations uh, that the United States stands for certain values, that we stand for the spread of uh, democracy, for human rights, uh, for uh, freedom of the press, for freedom of religion, uh, for women's rights. Uh, and uh, oh, e e while Republican administrations have sometimes uh, been uh, uh, a bit more of a real politique approach, having to work with uh, uh, authoritarian regimes like Pakistan or others, you certainly haven't seen U.S. presidents, even in Republican administrations, embracing uh, dictators and authoritarian leaders, praising them for their leadership, suggesting that it's a great idea that they be president for life. Uh, the thought of Donald Trump, e even though it's, I think many people believe it's fine to try to see if something can be worked out with the North Koreans, uh, that's been a festering problem for decades. But to profess love for Kim Jong-un and great respect for him, uh, given his human rights abuses, uh, uh, is a really quite shocking thing and, and undermines uh, uh, U.S. Uh, moral authority around the world. Again, you know, we all know, you know, the United States is not a perfect country, but the United States has still for decades been looked to uh, as a beacon, a city on a hill, uh, perhaps an imperfect one. Uh, that other countries look to, and they expect our presidents to stand for those values and to stand up for democracy, not to be uh, praising and cozying up to dictators like, uh, uh, like Vladimir Putin. So that's really hurting the United States and what the United States stands for uh, around the world. Uh, and as Ken says, it really marginalizes us now uh, when the president does not stick up for American values. So, so let, Ken, let's pick up on Putin. 
Uh, you've been active in intelligence matters for years. Uh, so the one particular question I want to ask you is, tell us about the effect of Trump's embrace of Putin in opposition to the conclusions of his own intelligence community. Uh, just yesterday, uh, the National Security Advisor said that he was happy that Putin and the Russians had confirmed for him that they weren't going to interfere in the next election. Yeah. How does taking that assurance affect morale? How does it affect our foreign intelligence sharing with other allied nations? Good question. And first, as to the assurance that the Russians aren't going to be um, trying to manipulate our elections this go round, uh, I think we all know that that's ridiculous. Of course they are. They're already doing it. They did it to great effect and to great success in 2016. And if there's one thing Putin always uh, does is if he has success hurting America, he's going to repeat whatever he did to achieve that success over and over and over. And uh, we've seen that since 2016, and we're going to see those efforts redoubled, and we are seeing it redoubled now. So, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure where anybody would come up with the idea that we shouldn't be concerned about Russian interference. But in terms of the the relationship uh, or the impact of these, uh, the cozying up with Vladimir Putin on the intelligence community, it's been very damaging. Uh, you know, this started at the very beginning of the Trump administration, actually even before the inauguration, when the intelligence community put out its intelligence community assessment, finding that the Russians had intentionally interfered with our election and that it had been directed by Putin and that it was done in part to both denigrate Hillary Clinton and help uh, Donald Trump. The, the president or president-elect at that time pushed back on that finding and went public with the allegation that the intelligence community were Nazis. He analogized them to Nazis, which is a, pr a pretty appalling thing to do for a president-elect in relation to his intelligence community that he's going to have to rely on. And the, the relationship has only gotten worse. I mean, soon after that, he had a, a meeting with Ambassador Kislyak of Russia and disclosed some... Uh, high-level, uh, very secret information to the Russian ambassador. Um, you know, so all these things make the intelligence community, you know, sort of highly suspicious of him. And it helps to break that, that kind of conduct helps to break down the really important relationship between the president, who's the ultimate policymaker, and the intelligence community that is the source of the information that a conscientious policymaker should be using in deciding what's, what policy decisions to come to. And so you've got um, you've got a, a really dysfunctional relationship right now. And in fact, there are even reports recently that the CIA was, you know, that some in the CIA felt like they were uh, they were trying to sort of govern or or, or keep or, or check the flow of information about Russia to the White House because of the concern that the president would react badly to the intelligence that he thinks is contrary to his interests, i.e. that makes it look like Vladimir Putin is not our friend, um, which of course he's not. And I don't know the, the validity of those reports, but I think the fact of those reports demonstrate the very difficult scenario or difficult situation that our intelligence community is in dealing with a president like this. And then I guess lastly, you ask about our foreign partners um, and you know concerns that the president's erratic conduct and his willingness to cozy up to a Vladimir Putin or uh, Kim Jong-un might have on our partner's willingness to, to work closer with us and share with us. Of course, that's a problem. Of course, our partners see this. They see it when the president 
hands over classified information to the Russian ambassador. And I'm sure it's making them all think twice before disclosing important information to our intelligence community, you know, out of the concern that it might end up in Donald Trump's hands and then go straight from there to his buddy in the, buddies in the Russian government. Paul, I'll jump back in on this just because I, 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 it worries me, and I think it worries almost everybody in our group. Uh, 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 the president's relationship with Putin uh, and his soft spot for Russia, maybe it's just because it is so uh, uh, head-spinning, this change in the Republican Party, uh, which has historically uh, uh, had grave concerns about, you know, first the Soviet Union and then about Russia. It doesn't mean that there needed to be a bad relationship. Actually, when I was legal advisor at the State Department, uh, uh, we had a, a, a decent relationship with the Russians until the Russian uh, invasion of Georgia. Uh, but you know, Putin's refusal, uh, or I'm sorry, Donald Trump's refusal uh, to say anything negative about Putin at all uh, uh, really puts him essentially at war uh, with the rest of his own national security establishment, as well as with Republicans in Congress, all of whom know better. Uh, you recall he's, he's met uh, uh, privately a couple of times with Putin uh, and then has refused to disclose what they've talked about. Uh, and it's all just uh, rather odd and concerning, and I think something that really needs to be, needs to be plumbed a bit more. So we, we've talked about the diplomatic problems that have arisen in the last uh, uh, four years. We've just talked about the intelligence problems. Let's turn to the, uh, to the military itself, the hallmark of our national security. Um, Trump has said many times that he's on the side of the military, that he rebuilt it from a downturn under Obama, that he's the best friend that the military's ever had. Um, John? Let's let's start by taking that those claims on the merits. Is it true? I mean, is military funding up? And if so, what should we make of that? Is that the hallmark of national security? So uh, answers are, are are yes and no. The uh, the military funding is up under Donald Trump uh, over the last couple of years from the Obama administration, but uh, uh, Donald Trump's claims that they are the highest ever is simply false. Uh, the in inflation-adjusted dollars, the defense budget uh, under Donald Trump is actually not as high as it was in the last year of the Bush administration and the first four years of the Obama administration. Uh, towards the end of the Obama administration, uh, 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 President Obama, and consistent with mandates from Congress to, uh, to uh, get uh, spending under control, uh, reduced the uh, defense spending so that when uh, Donald Trump came into office, he did increase it uh, over the last couple of years of the Obama administration and has been, in fact, spending money uh, on the uh, on defense expenditures. But it's not all been on military hardware, as he said. So, uh, and furthermore, military hardware is not uh, is not everything. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, while he may have spent more in the last couple of years on uh, uh, planes and, and other weapons. Uh, uh, he's done a lot of other bad things for the military. I come from a, a long military family and to see uh, Donald Trump politicizing the military, which has historically 
tried to stay out of politics, to use the military to uh, uh, clear protesters from Lafayette Square, uh, to threaten to use the Insurrection Act to uh, deploy the military across the country, uh, to dip into individual uh, cases of military justice. Uh, I think uh, Donald Trump is actually doing a grave disservice to the military. He doesn't have the the military's back. Uh, as Ken has said before, he's looking out for Donald Trump, not for the military. So, so Ken, let me pick up on one thing John just mentioned and, and dip into it a bit more. Um, President Trump has intervened at least four times by my count, perhaps more, in the military justice system. You know, what effect does that have on the military? How appropriate or inappropriate is it? And um, how does that fit into your uh, general sense that Trump's actions are mostly for his own benefit? Yeah, that's terribly troubling. I mean, it's I'm going to broaden it, the question out or the answer out, I should say, to just address his willingness and eagerness to intervene in the justice systems generally. I mean, he's done that countless times in the criminal justice system. It's been clear that his interests in various cases, you can look at the Stone and Flynn case, um, have been felt by the Justice Department and then have translated into decisions and actions taken by the, the, um, the Justice Department. And the same goes for the, uh, for the military justice system where he's been willing to step in and, and take actions for his own reasons and according to his own thinking. And the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, the, 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 um, the foundation of confidence in a justice system is that it runs on the facts and the law and doesn't run on the whims of a leader. And um, once you have a leader acting according to his whim and dictating results, that undermines confidence in that judicial system. That applies both for the criminal system, our criminal system in the Article Three courts, but also for the military justice system. And I think it also, in the military context, it has an added detriment that it undermines the, the careful balancing of the judicial system to avoid command influence. And the criminal, in the military system, that's very much a concern. There are safeguards uh, that are legion throughout the process to prevent command influence from influencing or dictating uh, the results of the justice system that are to be based on facts and law. And this is sort of the classic example of the ultimate commander coming in and influencing the system. So let's transition lastly to a, a, a kind of consideration of the institutional interests. Uh, if I had to say what the deep state means to me, it's American institutions and systems and processes. From a Trumpian perspective, that's in opposition to his interests. From an American perspective, it seems to me that's the ground of our governance. So let me start with you, Ken. Um, you were the Homeland Security Advisor. Uh, you work closely with the National Security Advisor. Uh, what's the proper role and function of those two jobs? And how does that proper functioning compare with how they've operated under Trump? That's, I think, a very important question. And I think that goes to um, a general, um, not lack of understanding, but insufficient understanding um, 
you know, by the public of the importance of some of the internal processes of government and how much Trump has damaged the uh, our ability to govern by his lack of observing those processes. I get it. I get the concern uh, that, you know, a, a new president comes in, a number of political appointees come in throughout the federal government, and they're trying to implement a the president's agenda. And sometimes, you know, that might cause that might run into some resistance by the bureaucracy. That's an age old problem in DC. And that's actually part of the dynamic that makes the government work every four years or whenever there's a new president who comes in, especially if there's a change in party, you have a change in approach in every agency. And, um, and it takes a little work to move the agency, but the career officials should salute and, and do what's uh, directed by the political officials. So long, of course, it's within the balance of propriety and, and lawful. That's okay. But um, what Trump is, is saying is that this is, there's a deep state conspiracy beyond just that, you know, the sort of the bureaucratic um, push and pull of, of DC gov- government here in DC. And a great example of that is the National Security Council, the interagency process that is run out of the White House, in which, you know, historically you have the heads of all the relevant agencies coming together to deal with an issue. Let's say it's dealing with North Korea. You'd have the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. You'd have um, the Attorney General, you know, everybody who has some role in dealing with uh, North Korea. And they'd sit down and they'd think through an issue, think through uh, a policy, the policy options, and then come up with a recommendation for the president. And it's a great way of making sure that you look at an issue like from a perspective of 360 degrees, think about all the ramifications of whatever policy you adopt, and you give the best recommendation to the president for all the interests at stake, diplomatic, military, economic, et cetera. That's a really important process. And as I see it from where I sit, the president is is not really paying much attention to that process because he looks at decisions, as we said earlier, through one single lens, which is what's best for him. So he's not too concerned about the ramifications. He's not too concerned about getting the best advice from the people who are the best experts. He's just concerned with deciding often, according to his quote unquote gut, what he thinks is best for him. So John, you were at the Department of State for a while. I think that's where you and I first met. Yeah. Traditionally, the Secretary of State stays out of politics. Um, Secretary Pompeo has not. Uh, I think of his taking uh, uh, part part in the Republican convention from Jerusalem, as an example, uh, or his recent uh, proposed trip to the Vatican, though the Pope declined to see him. Uh, how out of, out of bounds, out of character is this kind of conduct? And how does this affect the State Department's ability to function? So it's very out of character. Uh, almost all secretaries of state uh, for, gosh, I don't know, 30, 40 years have been political people, uh, you know, maybe George Marshall was the last secretary to not be terribly political, uh, but the rest of them have been political people. Uh, but when they become secretary of state, uh, they have generally stayed out of partisan political politics. Uh, it's not because of the Hatch Act, because they as uh, senior political appointees can do things that are exempt from the Hatch Act. It's simply by tradition that has long been observed that the Secretary of State and senior officials at the State Department 
uh, do not get involved in partisan political politics because it then appears to the rest of the world and in the United States, but to the rest of the world, that they're only representing some portion of the American people, that they're only representing as the nation's top diplomat uh, Republicans or Democrats. So uh, that's why historically secretaries of state have not attended uh, or spoken at uh, their national conventions and have not engaged in political activities. You know, uh, there's a new book out about Jim Baker as Secretary of State, who was certainly a political person. Uh, He was a brilliant political leader. But when he was Secretary of State, he stayed out of politics. So uh, for Secretary Pompeo to engage in political activity like speaking at the convention uh, really is a a, a real breaking of traditional norms. So, uh, Ken? Let's take another agency. You work. You were Homeland Security Advisor. You worked with uh, closely with Michael Chertoff, the Secretary of DHS, who I work for. Uh, DHS hasn't had a confirmed leader for more than 550 days now, the longest cabinet vacancy in American history. How does that affect operations at a cabinet department? Yeah, that's uh, really, it's terribly detrimental to the effectiveness of any agency to have somebody at the top of that agency be in the acting capacity for a long period of time. You know, I was acting U.S. attorney for a while and I thought I, you know, I didn't really feel limited. Um, And so, you know, it often happens that you have people in acting capacity for a while. But the problem with that is that, you know, you don't have the same, uh, you don't sort of have the same latitude. You also don't, aren't perceived as having the same authority if you're not um, confirmed. Uh, and um, and so, on the margins, it can actually really make a difference. And uh, and look, it, it, that that's both externally outside the agency when the agency is trying to sort of stake out its ground in an interagency kind of uh, difference of opinion, but also internally, uh, because you know this has been whatever 550 days where internally people are looking at that person as you know a, a temporary um, leader, not somebody who's going to be engaging in long-term change of the agency. So it undermines that person's ability to affect change within the agency over the long term. And just to round out that point, if there's an agency which needs that kind of leadership, it's DHS, because DHS is a huge sprawling agency and, you know, conglomeration of whatever it was, 22 separate agencies that, you know, just came together, whatever it was, 17 years ago, which in the, you know, the, the life of of a bureaucracy is relatively recent and it's still sort of finding its way within the DC bureaucracy. Um, and that's why we need people like Michael Chertoff and others who are strong leaders to, to solidify the DHS and make it an effective agency. And it's still got a ways to go in that process and having somebody as an acting for whatever it is, you know, two and a year and a half uh, in duration, that's um, that doesn't help the process. So, John, let's finish this with one last agency. Give me your assessment of the role of the Attorney General and Attorney General Barr's performance vis-a-vis national security in the election. Well, let me say two things about that. One, the fact that you say last agency is symptomatic of this administration, and it's what makes me and Ken and the 130 
former Republican administration national security officials so concerned that, that Trump has systematically dismantled and uh, diminished and hollowed out uh, and undermined the uh, abilities of all of our national security departments and agencies, the, the Department of State, uh, the Department of Defense, even if he's given them more hardware, the intelligence agencies, uh, the Department of Justice. So you know, the I've known Bill Barr for a long time. I was a young associate at the partner that he was a law firm in, so I've known him for more than 30 years. And I've always had you know, great respect for him and his intellect. Uh, when he was head of OLC, Deputy Attorney General, Attorney General, I was hopeful when he was appointed Attorney General that he would be a real adult here. Uh, and I and many others, uh, and, and Paul, you know this from our work at uh, Checks and Balances, have been surprised and very disappointed uh, with Attorney General Barr because he's, one, acted more as the president's personal attorney, seemed to be trying to defend him and his actions at every turn. And two, and Ken uh, can speak to this as well as a longtime Department of Justice prosecutor, has completely undermined morale and indeed public confidence in the Department of Justice by appearing to make it political, uh, suggesting that it's been politicized, interfering in individual prosecutions, uh, uh, and really undermining the role of prosecutors and even of the FBI. And it's 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 a very sad thing. I spent four years at the Department of Justice before I moved to the White House, and all of us are very proud of that that independence uh, that the Department of Justice has had. And 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 Bill Barr has really undermined morale uh, in the department. It's it's a it's a sad and really very perplexing thing that I hope can be uh, restored in a in a Biden administration. Well. All of that has got to be amongst the most depressing set of conversations I've had in the last few days, uh, unfortunately, uh, with some degree of accuracy. So let me let me look forward a bit. Let me let me look forward a bit. And uh, since I since we don't want to keep people too long, let's just do one set of questions for you. Uh, you've both said that you're supporting Biden. You know, let's assume he wins. Uh, what one thing do you expect him to do that you're going to approve of in this national security space? And tell me something that you expect him to do that you're going to wish he didn't do, that you're going to be uh, opposed to on uh, policy grounds. Uh, Ken, you go first. Look, I think the first thing he's going to do, um, and this dovetails with the comments we've made so far in this broadcast, is that he's going to reach out to our allies. He's going to let them know that we stand with them, that the understanding we've had since the end of World War II, that we are the leader of the free world and that we're going to stand with anybody who allies, us, uh, allies with us to protect the free world, um, that we have sort of reassumed that mantle and that we'll do it aggressively. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean, and I, I believe this is the way that um, a, a President Biden would calibrate that message. That doesn't mean that we're going to give in to the interests of our allies. It doesn't mean that we're we're not going to uh, we're not going to insist on 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 pushing our own national interests. But rather, it's a recognition that our national interest is consistent with being a leader in promoting the interests of like-minded countries in you know um, defending freedom and pushing back on 
regimes like the Russian, Chinese, and uh, North Korean regimes. So I think that's the the, the that outreach and that uh, comfort that they're going to he will give to our allies is going to be critical in helping us so helping to restore us to a role of leadership around the world. In terms of things that he would not do that he would do that I would disagree with in the national security space, honestly, you know I I find. Uh, Vice President Biden to be relatively centrist. I was quite relieved when he got the nod as the Democratic uh, nominee, uh, as opposed to somebody who in the national security space would be, you know, quite um, take a quite divergent view of the reality of the national security space that I do. Um, so I actually, I, I don't see any one area where I'm really uh, gravely concerned that he's going to take us down a perilous path. Um, and as we've said, as our group has said in our statement, this is the group that John and I are part of, and you and I, you are a part of as well, uh, that look, we get it that there are going to be policy differences, but now is not the time for those policy differences to be debated, but rather now is the time to get uh, Donald Trump out of the Oval Office, get Joe Biden in, and then we can have the rational debate about sort of how best to pursue our national interests. But at least at that point, we'll have a president who cares about our national interest and not just his own. John, how about you? So I'll just take a different part of that. One um, uh, that I'm very excited about if Biden wins, uh, and I'm certain that he will do, is to rebuild our national security departments and agencies, and particularly the State Department, where I most recently served, uh, uh, that's been completely hollowed out uh, with uh, lots of people leaving. I'm confident that he will uh, increase the budget and put a real emphasis on uh, diplomacy around the world. And again, this is not just to sort of make nice with other countries. This is to get things done for the United States. Donald Trump talks about being transactional, but the way we do transactions and deals with other countries is through our effective diplomacy at the State Department. So I'm excited that he will uh, rebuild the uh, the State Department, but hopefully confidence in the Justice Department and our intelligence agencies. And then I know Ken and I are both confident uh, that he will put in good people in senior positions at all of these departments and agencies. You know, Donald Trump has really had a hard time recruiting uh, good people, and then he uh, and then he fires them along the way, which results in uh, 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 a really very poor team. I, I don't know how Donald Trump could staff a second term because he's already scratching the bottom of the barrel. Uh, but I know Ken and I are both pretty excited about the kinds of people, uh, decent people with experience, who uh, Joe Biden would put in. Uh, uh, if he were elected. As far as disagreement, I can, you know, it, it's hard to know. I, I do worry uh, that uh, uh, Joe Biden has had to make peace with the far left of his party. We know uh, that some of the people uh, in the Bernie Sanders camp would like to you know, completely uh, defund, I think, the Defense Department as well. Uh, but I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think there's support for that in Congress, and I don't think that Joe Biden himself would support that. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see. But there's nothing at this point uh, that I particularly worry about uh, in a Joe Biden administration. Well, that's a little more upbeat news. I'm glad we ended there. And as I as I've said before on this podcast, we always try to end the podcast with good news. Today, there's a little more, and it's simple. Uh, though we're under stress, 
the number of people who've already voted is a stunning confirmation of America's fundamental strength. In Florida today, more than 300,000 ballots have already been counted. So that's also good news. And that's going to be a wrap for our show, guys. Thanks for joining us. At Checks and Balances, we believe in the rule of law, the power of truth, and the independence of the criminal justice system. We believe that these principles apply regardless of party or person in power. And our goal is to remind the nation that free speech, a free press, separation of powers, and a limited government are the bedrock of the American experiment. We'll be releasing a new show every Monday. This episode and all future episodes are available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you want to find it. You can also find them archived at cnb.org if you want to find them on our website. Thanks again to Ken Weinstein and John Bellinger for joining me today on the podcast. I'm Paul Rosenzweig, your host, and today's rule of law quote for the day is something Carolyn Kennedy said. The bedrock of our democracy, she said, is the rule of law. And that means we have to have an independent judiciary and judges who can make decisions independent of the political winds that are blowing. Next week, we'll talk about the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Join us then. Thanks a lot for joining me. (laughs) 